Okay. If you guys have Bibles, or you don't, that's okay. Uh, but the words will not be on the screen, so I'm going to encourage you to open Bibles. Uh, there are Bibles in the chairs here. Or grab your phone and open up your Bible app, if that's uh, your preference. We are in uh, Mark chapter 6 this morning. And, uh, and the way that we have been doing this series is we're just reading through the Scripture, and we're going on an adventure, sort of like Indiana Jones. And our goal here is let's get into the adventures of Jesus. Let's see what he does. Let's see what he says. And hopefully it inspires us to want to be just like him. Uh, kind of like when you watch Indiana Jones, you want to go home and get your dad's hat on and be just like Indiana Jones, right? That's the idea. And, and sort of, you know, last week, Jesus went on two adventures. They were some solid adventures. But this week, in Mark chapter 6, he goes on a whole bunch of adventures, all right? So we've got a whole bunch of stuff ahead of us. So let's, let's just dive right in. We're going to read verses 1 to 6 right off the bat here, okay? Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? Where are these remarkable miracles? Uh, what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So a couple of things to just notice about this passage. You think about somebody that you knew from the time that they were young, from the time that they were a child, when they were growing up. You know their past. You know what they were like when they were a kid. And sometimes it can be really hard to not see them as a kid, to not see them for all the mistakes they made, to not see them for the, the immature young child that they once were, especially as they grow up. And maybe now they're, they're a young businessman, or maybe they're, they've grown up into somebody that's a, a very smart young woman, right? And they have all this wisdom to offer you. They're so smart, and they're, they're might, maybe they're even smarter than you now. And you think, where, where did all this come from? How can this person who used to run around in diapers, who used to do this and that, I watched this person do this really dumb thing just a few years ago, and now they think they can tell me how to manage my money? They want me to trust them with X, Y, or Z? And, and this is sort of the mentality that Jesus is, is running into in this moment. Right? He's come back to his hometown, not as the son of Mary. He's come back to his hometown, not as a carpenter. He's come back to his hometown as a rabbi with followers. He's come back as a teacher. He's entered the synagogue. He is doing incredible teachings. This is one of the things that we've seen in some of the other stories here in Mark, right? He enters into these places and he does incredible teachings. 
This is one of the things that has set him apart from other rabbis and other official synagogue leaders. He teaches in a way that no one else can teach with such authority. But the people in his hometown look at him and go, wait, where does this come from? This is Mary's son. Just a year ago, he was in the carpentry shop doing his carpentry thing. Where does he get off being like this, commanding such authority, suddenly being a rabbi, suddenly having disciples, and doing all of these things? They can't seem to parse out the fact that Jesus is not the same Jesus who left town. They can only see him from the outside. They can't see him from the inside. And maybe that's something you've experienced before. Maybe you have experienced before what it is like to only ever be seen from the outside and not to be known from the inside, especially by people who know your past. They just can't seem to let it go. And maybe you know what it's like to be a believer now and then interact with people who knew you before you were a believer and they can't seem to let it go. Wait, you're a believer? You do the church thing? Isn't this the same person who used to go out with us and drink or smoke or blah, 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 and they can't help but remind you of the life that you used to live, and it just hangs on you, and you're like, yeah, but that's not who I am anymore. I don't do that stuff because I'm this person, and all they can do is see you from the outside, and they can't see you from the inside, so maybe you know what it's like to only be seen from the outside and not from the inside. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this passage is Mark notes that Jesus can't seem to really do miracles here. And that's fascinating. It's one of the only places it says that Jesus can't do it. And it, is it really true that he can't? That's kind of the sticky question here. Can't he? One of the things that we know is that the atmosphere is essential for God to be at work. Nobody has any faith in Jesus because they're stuck on who he was and not on who he is. The atmosphere is all wrong. They have no faith. And that's what it says. He could not do any miracles because he was amazed at their lack of faith. It's not that he couldn't, it's that they had no faith in him. They could not see who he was, they were who he is, they're stuck on who he was. They had no faith. The atmosphere is all wrong in this moment. They have no faith in him. If we go back and we were to look at every other adventure that Jesus has, including last week, the woman who comes up to him, who's been bleeding, Jarius, who comes up to him, who's got a sick daughter. What is it that provides the healing? It's their faith. The woman touches his robes and she is immediately healed. It's her faith. He looks and says, child, your faith has healed you. Right? We're going to see at the end of this chapter that Jesus starts walking through towns and all these sick people are laid out and they're just touching his robes and being healed. It's faith. It's faith. 
And in this town, there's no faith. In his hometown, there's no faith. They are stuck on who he was, and there's no faith in this town. And so Jesus can barely do any miracles because nobody has faith in what he is. The atmosphere is essential. And you know this. You know this, actually. Think about it. If people come together and they are intent on hate, there can be no love. If people come together and they are intent on violence, there can be no peace. If people come together and they are intent on indifference and hard-heartedness and criticalness, how can the spirit work? The atmosphere is essential. And it reminds me of a passage in Revelation where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open it, Jesus comes in. But who opens it? You do. Jesus doesn't bust the door down. He doesn't grab his battering ram and knock it down. He doesn't grab an ax and chop through it. Jesus stands at the door and knocks and waits for you to open it. You have to open it. It's on you. It's your choice, right? It's on your faith. There's no faith in this town. So Jesus moves on. So let's pick it up here. In verse uh, 7. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the 12 to him, he began sending them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. We'll stop there. And I am going to take just a moment to open up a cough drop because I can feel my mouth getting dry and somebody has provided me a gift. Um, two by two. That sounds like another story, right? It sounds like the Noah and the Ark story. Uh, it's not the Noah and the Ark story and it's not a throwback to the Noah and the Ark story. Anybody have an idea of why they say two by two? Why does he send them out two by two? What? Yeah, but Why? Witness, yeah. It's so that there's witness and testimony to whatever they see, whatever they do. So there's corroboration. So Jesus sends them out in pairs so that when they come back and they report on what they've done, what they've seen, there's official testimony, okay? Um, he, he gives them, he's like, you can take a walking stick and pretty much nothing else, right? And it's because he wants them to trust in God for provision, for whatever's going on. He's like, you can't take an extra shirt. Why? Because an extra shirt, you could use that like a blanket at nighttime, okay? And so he wants them to find hospitality in whatever town they go to. And if they don't find hospitality at the first house, then you go to the next house and hopefully somebody will put you up for the night. And if you find a house that puts you up for the night, he's like, stay there. And so he says, like, don't go from house to house. If you find a house that puts you up for the night, stay in that house for the whole time that you're at that village. 
And why is that? Well, because maybe they go to a village where the message is popular. And so maybe the first house they come to, it's not the nicest house, but they've extended hospitality, the message is popular, and a nicer house offers to put them up. Well, then you don't go to the nicer house, to the nicer house, to the nicer house, and keep working your way up in the village. He's like, no, 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 stay in the first house, okay? That's the idea. So trust in the Lord for provision. Stay in the first house that you come to. Uh, don't take your wallet, right? Don't take any money. And he says, don't take a bag, because usually uh, Jewish men would carry a bag with them. And uh, priests had this bag, like a provision bag, a donation bag. And what they would do is, is they would go around and, and they would talk to people. They would get donations. And priests would take donations, 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 and they would fill it up very full and get very rich from it. And one of the things Jesus is trying to show the people who he's sending his message out to is that they're different from the normal priestly travelers that would be coming along. That this isn't about taking donations. This isn't about filling up their provision bag until it's overflowing. This is about giving, not receiving. So they're not coming with a wallet. They're not coming with a provision bag. That's not even an option. The only thing that the disciples are asking for is simply hospitality. So they're going out. Hospitality is the only thing that they need, and they're there to serve whoever they come to. And now here's the other key thing that I think is worth mentioning. The message that they take, it's not their message. That's something that's worth note, especially in the day and the age that we live in today. The message that the disciples take is the message of Jesus. It's Jesus' message. It's an extension of Jesus' message. It's the message that they've heard from Jesus this whole time. We live in a world where we can take and give whatever message we want. We can tune in on TV and find the coolest message that we want out there. The flashiest, neatest, newest message that we want. This is Jesus' message. The disciples have been traveling with Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've heard some parables. They've seen the work that he's done. The power that he's given them is a power over demonic possession. It's a call to go spread his message. His message. Not their message. I think one of the things that we have to be very weary of in the culture and the world we live in is the message that we're given. Whose message are we hearing? Is it Jesus' message? Does it line up with the scripture that we have? They have his message. They've been given his power. And they're told to take it. And they're told if the villages that they go to don't put them up and don't listen, then they should shake the dust from their sandals and move on. Which is, a, which is a fun, popular saying that sometimes we like to use, right? 
Sometimes we say that to each other. Oh, if someone's not listening to you, shake the dust from your sandals and, and move on, right? <laughs> and go, right? What does that really mean? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. What, is, what does that really mean? Um, in Jewish history, it was thought of that the, the sand from a non-Jewish land contaminated you. So if you had to travel through a non-Jewish land and then you came to a Jewish land, you needed to take your sandals and get the non-Jewish sand off of your sandals in order to be clean, all right? And so what Jesus is saying is, if you're in one of these Jewish towns and they don't put you up and they won't listen to you, then treat them like a non-Jewish town. Consider the sand of that town unclean. Shake it from your sandals as you move on, okay? Which is kind of harsh when you think about it. Jesus is lumping in these Jews with non-Jews. But in this scenario, Jesus is sort of test-running the disciples. This is the first time he's sending them out with power, with a message, and there's only so much time. He hasn't given them carte blanche to just go forever without coming back. He's giving them a certain amount of time to go with this before they have to come back. So if they don't listen, they're not gonna hear the message, then just go. Find the next one. And if they're not gonna listen, then go. Find the next one, and then we're all gonna meet back together. All right? Now let's go to the next, the next part of the story here. But this gets a little confusing because I'm not sure how it is in your Bible, but I know in my Bible it's kind of one big section. But it's not really one big section. And so we're going to read just the first couple of verses and just pause for a second so that I can show you where this is really two sections so that it makes a little bit more sense. So start with me in verse 14. We're, we're going to read about King Herod and John the Baptist. So verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Um, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now pause there. That's really a section in and of itself. Um, so as the disciples have gone out and they're spreading the message and they're talking about Jesus, word gets back to Herod, okay? And word gets back to Herod of sort of three possibilities as to who Jesus might be, okay? Some people are saying, oh, he's, he's a prophet, there's, just, there's this guy going around doing these things, saying these things, he's a prophet. Other people are saying, it's Elijah, <laughs> come back from the dead, which is sort of a big deal too because Elijah is sort of thought of as like the prophet, okay? So that's a big deal. But as Herod is hearing about what is happening across the land, the miracles, the teaching, all of that, Herod is thinking to himself, um, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead doing miracles, okay? So this is, this is Herod's sort of 
guilty conscience. Anybody ever read the, uh, the Telltale Heart when they were in school? It's an Ed- Edgar Allan Poe poem, and he like, there's a guy, and he, he kills somebody, and, and he buries them under his like house, if I remember the poem right. But he, he sort of hears the heartbeat of this dead person. It's like, and it drives him crazy, okay? Sort of the same thing. Herod has killed John the Baptist, and now he's imagining John the Baptist has come back to life, and it's John the Baptist who's doing all these miraculous things, and that's who Jesus is, okay? That's what Herod thinks has happened. So that's what this section is. Now, the next part, starting in verse 17, it's the backstory of what happened to John the Baptist. So if you just read straight through, it's sort of confusing. But this next part is actually telling us then, so we go back in time, whatever, that's my back in time sound, okay, all right? And now we find out what happened between Herod and John the Baptist. Does that make sense? You with me? All right, so let's, let's find out what happened. So starting in verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head the man went because John, the man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought it back, his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. So that's the backstory. This is why Herod thinks, well, I killed John. John's come back to life to haunt me, do all these miracles, and that's who Jesus is. All right? That's our backstory. Now, um, I had to write this down because it's so confusing. I could have drawn on the whiteboard, but I thought we'd all have some trauma if I got the whiteboard out. So uh, it's easier for me just to tell you here. This is a very messed up family, all right? There's, and there's multiple Herods in the Bible, which is also part of what gets this whole thing confusing. Herod's father is named Herod. And Herod's father is the Herod 
who had the babies killed when Jesus was born. So John and Jesus were babies, and there was a mass execution of babies because of the prophecy about this king that was going to be born. Okay? So that's the old Herod. Old man Herod killed a whole bunch of babies. All right? Old man Herod had a whole bunch of wives. Bunch of wives. Herod the Great is old man Herod. And his second wife, old man Herod's second wife, second son, had a daughter. And that's Herodias. Old man Herod's third wife, first son, is Herod Philip. Herod Philip and Herodias had a daughter. Her name is Salome. That's the girl who danced. Just keep that in mind. Now, old man Herod and his fourth wife had a second son named Herod. And that's the Herod we're reading about. That Herod seduced Herodias to leave her husband and marry him. They got together. So Salome is Herod's niece and sister-in-law. Nope. Niece and grandniece. There we go. Niece and grandniece. Herodias is his niece and sister-in-law. There we go. Salome's mom. Okay? Is that a family tree that doesn't have enough branches? Okay. It, it, it's not good. Um, Herodias is the, is the niece and sister-in-law. So, no, she's not. There's a generation in there. Yes. Otherwise, she would be a half-sister. So she's not a half-sister. There is a generation there. Yeah. Um, so this is why John has a big problem. Here's what makes it worse. Herod's a Jew. Okay? Now, we would say it like this. He's Jewish. Okay? He's not a good Jew. He uses his Jewishness when it benefits him, but he's technically a Jew. So, John, the Baptist, he's like, this is so wrong. You can't be the leader and be in relationship like this. Okay? I'm not sure what to make the comparison to in our current world. But it would be like claiming to be a Christian and being in a place of leadership and being involved in some sort of fouled up marital situation, but still, you know, Christian, okay? So John goes to Herod and says, you cannot, it is wrong, it is immoral for you to be in, you know, lockstep marriage relationship with your half-sister, no, no, sorry, wait, not half-sister. Uh, 
sister-in-law niece, okay? That's wrong. And that gets him locked up in prison, right? So here's, here's the interesting thing. Herod sort of likes John, doesn't like that he calls him out, but is like fascinated by this prophet who tells the truth. So he keeps him locked in prison, but doesn't kill him, okay? Herodias, which is the wife, hates John with a passion, okay? She wants John dead. Herod won't kill him. She wants him dead. Salome is the daughter, not Herod's daughter. It's his niece and grandniece, but will become his stepdaughter when they get married, okay? Herod has a big birthday, and Salome does this dance. Now, here's the terrible thing. This is a dance that would be done by prostitutes. It would be scandalous. She would be scandalously dressed. Um, you can picture it. I don't need to say more about it than that. But what you have is a mother who is willing to take her daughter and put her in that position. So you have the generals, you have Herod, you have all of these officials that are gathered for the birthday. You can imagine the scene, royal, everybody lounging, in comes Salome, this young girl. She's been dressed like a prostitute. She does this dance for everybody. Everybody's really impressed, including Herod. This is his future daughter and his future stepdaughter, but is his niece and grandniece as well. And he's so blown away that he's like, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. So she goes out, talks to her mom, and mom is ready to go because mom has the whole thing planned. And she's like, ask for John the Baptist's head. And she goes back in and she finally gets what she's wanted the whole time. John the Baptist dead because now, with John the Baptist dead, there's nothing holding Herod back from marrying her. There's an old um, biblical scholar who said, Herodias knew her marriage license could not be written on anything except the back of John the Baptist's death certificate. Okay? So that's the backstory of what happens to John the Baptist. It's a sick and twisted story, but the thing to know about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist was willing to speak truth to power, right? John the Baptist was willing to say, this is wrong, this is immoral, and you can't claim to be a Jew in a position like this and be living like this. That's wrong. Don't even think that you can do that. And it ended up claiming his life. And that's sort of the question I think that we all end up being left with, is where do we stand when it comes to that sort of thing? And if we had the same sort of thing happening in front of us today, if there was a comparable situation, would we be willing to stand up on our morals? Would we be willing to speak truth to power and say, look, I don't care what leadership position you're in, don't you dare claim to follow Jesus and live like that. Don't you dare claim to be a Christian 
and be the leader of blah, 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 because that shows me that you're not, right? Um, that is, that, I mean, it's, it's, that's a tough, tough place to be in. So that's the backstory. At the end of that, John's disciples, he still has disciples. The whole time he's been in prison, he still has disciples who have been out doing the very thing that John has been doing, calling people to repent, baptizing them. And they come and they take his body and then they go ahead and they bury it. Um, they do a, a, an actual burial for him then. So um, this is the end of John the Baptist's story, finally. But remember too that we said in the very beginning when we met John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark, we said John the Baptist's story is significant because he has a big message and it ends in his death. And then we meet Jesus, whose message is bigger and more well-known. John the Baptist's story is sort of a precursor. It shows us where this is leading. And Jesus knows it's leading the same way that his is, right? Okay. All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse uh, 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So now we know the apostles have come back to Jesus, okay? They went on their missions, and they've come back, okay? They gathered around Jesus, reported to him all that they have done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves into a boat, uh, in, a, in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups, and, uh, sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to the heavens, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave to them, then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So that's, that's a lot in one shot. There are a lot of scripture. This is the only miracle that shows up in all four gospels. This is a big deal. It made a significant impact on all of the disciples who were recording things. So this is a, this is a kind of a big deal thing. The disciples return from their travels and they're coming together with the intention of sharing with Jesus everything that has happened. And as they do this, and we've seen this in Mark, Mark records this again and again and again, the crowds are too much. 
You know, if we remember back, there was, a, there was a time when the crowds were so much that Jesus was like prepared with a getaway boat before uh, because he was afraid the crowds were gonna get too much. Well, in this moment, the disciples are trying to share. Jesus is trying to help them get rest and, a, and something to eat. And the crowds become so much that he's like, guys, get in the boat. Let's, let's go to a solitary place. And <laughs> they push out from shore. And the people are like, I uh, see where they're going. Let's run around the lake and beat them there. Okay? And the interesting thing is, like, they had, like, a, a four-mile trip straight across the lake to where they were going. It would be a ten-mile trip around the lake. And the people made that trip and got there before they made the four-mile trip across the lake. Kind of crazy when you think about that. And, and on the, what'd you say? <laughs> Joggers, yeah. Power walkers. Uh, <laughs> picture the Park City, you know. Um, and on the way, it's like they're stopping at every house and every town, and they're just getting more and more people as they go. And so they, they get this huge crowd by the time they get to where Jesus and the disciples, you know, get off the boat. And you think about, like, I mean, Jesus probably had every reason to be frustrated when the boat gets there. And it, I'm sure before they even get close to it, they can see the crowd amassing on the shore. And Jesus guy like, gotta be kidding me. You like, there's no solitary place there. There's no place for us to have a nice picnic and share our stories about what just happened and all of that. And yet, when they get there, it's one of the scriptures that I love the most. Jesus, it says, uh, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I, that's one that's always stuck out to me as, as sort of beautiful. That's Jesus' reaction to this whole crowd of people that have gathered there. They're a sheep without a shepherd. Just take a moment and just, what does that mean to you? Just process that. I, as you read scripture, one of the things that I think we can often be guilty of is just breezing through it. It's, it's like we can, we're like, okay, I'm going to read a chapter a day, right? And so we're just, I just got to bang through this chapter. And then we, we do it, and we're like, okay, I checked it off. I did my, my reading, you know what I mean? But like, just for a moment, sit with that. What, I mean, what do you think that, for Jesus to view this, I mean, 5,000 people are gathering. That's a massive crowd. And as Jesus comes to the shore, he sees them, has compassion on them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. What do you think? that means to him why does he see them that way not with annoyance not with frustration not with anger he doesn't order the disciples to like ah, all right i see what's happening turn the boat around let's see if they want to go 10 miles the other way we'll beat him back you know he doesn't he doesn't pull one of those on them right like he's just like okay let's let's keep going like we'll like what does that mean like there's, there's something to that. I think it's worth sitting on that. I think it's worth staying with that. Sheep without a shepherd. And, and I think it's also worth noting that when he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, what his response is. His response isn't like to do a miracle. His response is to teach them. That's his response. 
And, and Mark doesn't record what he teaches. It just says he teaches them many things. I'm not a shepherd. I know nothing about sheep, okay? Not a thing. I've probably seen like three YouTube videos about sheep. But when I think about sheep without a shepherd, I just think about a whole bunch of sheep milling around, sort of directionless. And if I think about 5,000 people gathering, that's sort of the same picture that I get. It's just a whole bunch of people directionlessly milling around. And that gives me enough of a picture to think maybe that's why Jesus has compassion on them. It's because he looks at them and he's like, this is a group of people that can't find their way. They don't have a pasture. They don't have a home. They have no defense against whatever's coming. You think about the big picture. Remember Mark? Mark is concerned with the cosmic story here. Mark is concerned with good versus evil. He is concerned with what Satan is doing and how God is combating Satan. We have 5,000 people milling around, sheep without a shepherd, no defense. And Jesus Christ is the answer to all of these things, right? If they can't find their way, who is the way, the truth, and the life? But Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who leads and we follow. He is the good shepherd. If they can't find pasture or food, well, who is the one who was our daily bread but Christ, right? Who, who is the one who is our defense against the evil one? In Christ, we have nothing to fear if we put our trust in him. Jesus is the one who is the answer to all of these things. And so, of course, Jesus takes compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd. So, I think that is something that is worth us sitting with. I think it's worth sitting with the fact that there are many times, more than we'd like to admit, that we are sheep without a shepherd. There are times that I am a sheep without a shepherd. There are times this week that I am a sheep without a shepherd. There are times in the last few weeks that I have been a sheep without a shepherd. I need to admit it. I need to be aware of it because I need to reorient myself to the shepherd. And so do you. And if we are a people who pretend like we don't need that, guys, we're not doing, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice. We're not fooling anybody except us. It's the honest truth. So, all these people are gathering. Jesus is teaching them. And the disciples are like, there is nothing around here. These people need to eat. Jesus, send them away. Let this be somebody else's problem. Let this be their problem. And it shows us two responses here. Jesus and the disciples, we have two responses to this. There is a problem, and the disciples want it to be somebody else's problem. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, this is your problem. You solve this. Let someone else figure this out, let someone else feed them, and Jesus says, you feed them. And immediately, like so many other stories in scripture, the disciples say, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough fill the blank in. How many times have you been in that place? 
where you felt a distinct call to do X, but immediately the first thing that comes to your mind is, we don't have, fill the blank in. We need to do better than that. That is not a faithful response. It's a human one. It's an understandable one. But it's not a faithful one. What is the faithful response when Jesus calls us to follow him? That is something that we need to push ourselves on. Again, I'm not saying we're going to get it right every time. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect every time. I'm saying instead of striving for perfection, strive for faithful. Instead of saying, I don't have enough, Jesus responds with, what do you have? What do you have? And then out of that answer, Jesus makes it enough. And that is something that we should always remember. What do you have? And out of that, there is enough. Out of that, there is more than enough. There is plenty. There is leftover. When Jesus calls you to something, the next time, I dare you for your first response to be, what do I have? And then let Jesus make it enough. So many times, because we say, I don't have enough, we never even start. Two weeks ago, I talked about the mustard seed, right? The smallest seed that becomes the biggest plant. What if we never planted the mustard seed because we thought it's not enough? And so it never became the biggest plant. How many mustard seeds have you not planted because you looked down and you said, it's too small a seed to make a difference? I would venture to guess more than you'd like to admit. I would be willing to admit I have failed to plant more mustard seeds than I would like to admit. It's more than enough because in Jesus, he can multiply it beyond what you can possibly imagine. And that is what we see in this miracle. This, this feast that feeds 5,000 should be compared to the feast of Herod. The feast of Herod is everything that we should not seek to be with a dancing girl that ends in the beheading of the prophets, that is all about celebrating all the worst things of humanity, where there is no faith, where there is only condemnation. And then right next to it in scripture, we have this feast that feeds 5,000 from nothing, that is all about faith, that is all about saying we have nothing and yet Jesus takes the nothing and makes it something. And this feast is everything that we should seek to be. This feast is who we should be as people, who we should be as followers of Jesus. Are you with me? Verse 41, immediately then Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida 
while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went on up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Pause there. Why does Jesus dismiss the disciples and stay back with the crowd to dismiss the crowd? Probably because, we don't know this from Mark, but if we read some of the other accounts of this, we get an idea that Though, again, Mark doesn't tell us the reaction from the crowd about this miracle. We get the idea that the crowd is stirred up and the crowd wants to make Jesus king after this feeding of the 5,000. Jesus probably doesn't want his disciples to get on board with this because this is the very kind of power that Jesus has been trying to avoid the whole time. And so he dismisses his disciples and then he goes and dismisses the crowd before he goes to a mountainside to pray. So the disciples start rowing across the the lake at night. Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray. And and Jesus, we see him go to a mountainside to pray three or four times in Mark. And every time he goes to the mountainside to pray, it's always after some sort of uh, big deal thing happens. Jesus goes to a mountainside to pray when there's lots on his mind. If you think about it, there's a lot on his mind. There's hostility of the Orthodox Jews and the Orthodox religious leaders probably the push to make him the messianic king. Um, There's the suspicion of Herod about him being John the Baptist right now. There's the discipleship of his followers. There's the will of his father in heaven and following the plan that he's on right now. There's a lot on his mind. So Jesus takes time away to go pray. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's something that all of us should do is taking that time to care for our relationship with the father. While Jesus is up on the mountainside and praying, he has a clear view of the lake. And he looks down, and assuming it's in the moonlight, he can see the disciples struggling against the wind, pushing against them as they are rowing across the lake. And so Jesus heads down to the lake. And uh, Jesus (laughs) walks on water to the disciples. And as he nears the boat, the disciples see him coming and they think he's, he's a, a ghost, an apparition, something. And they, they're spooked. Ah, who's that? Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. It's just, just me. It's just little old me walking on the water to you. No big deal. And so as he gets to the boat and climbs in, not only does he calm the disciples, but as he gets in the boat, he calms the wind as well. And that's... Um, so cool. Like the presence of Jesus calms them and calms the wind. But it's interesting to note too that as we read this account from Mark, Mark notes the hardness of the disciples' heart. They don't understand the feeding of the 5,000. They don't understand the miracle that's performed there. And so they don't really understand what's happening with the wind as he climbs in. 
This isn't the same kind of hardness of heart that we see with Pharaoh and Moses. It's not that sort of hardness of heart. It's, it's just they don't seem to understand who Jesus is yet. It's a misunderstanding of who Christ is. It's like they get it, but they don't quite get it. They recognize that he's the Messiah, but not quite who the Messiah is. Like, Jesus spares them from the crowd wanting to make him king, probably because they would fall into that thrust. Because while they think he's Messiah, they don't understand Messiah. Their hearts haven't quite comprehended it. That's what we're talking about when we say his, their hearts are too hard. So he goes with them to the other side of the lake, and that's where we are in verse 53. When they crossed over, they landed at the Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. All who touched it were healed. And this is just another example, once again, of crowds who pressed in upon Jesus to receive. And it's, I think it's a beautiful thing about our Savior who's willing to allow that very thing to happen. It shows the faith. We started this passage, this chapter, with a town with lack of faith. We end it with a countryside full of faith. The town where Jesus could do almost no miracles because of lack of faith, a countryside where all they have to do is touch his garment edges and they're healed. So we have these two kind of opposing things. But we also have crowds of folks that are there to receive, once again. Not there to know who Jesus is, there to get. And I think that becomes an ongoing warning to all of us to remember why we are here, always. Not that it is wrong to come into this place to receive, because we all need to receive, always. But to remember that we also need to come in to give. We come in to give to Jesus as well. We come in to know Jesus. This is not just one-sided. This is not just transactional. We come into this place to experience our Savior and to be experienced by our Savior. Make sure that your relationship with him is not just one-sided, but that you are being known by him as much as you are knowing him. Amen?